Hello and welcome to episode 192 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always with Jason Rabinowitz. How's your week going, Ian? Better than yours, apparently. Yeah, it's been a week. We were chatting before we hit record, and if we'd recorded that, it probably, no, it definitely would not have been a family-friendly podcast. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. Yeah, long week. It's only Wednesday, dealing with some work stuff. There's COVID in the household. Don't know if I'll be able to take my trip as planned this weekend, but I've got you to talk to. We've got a long list of things to discuss. Things are are happening in the industry, and they're mostly positive for a change. Yeah, this was a mostly good. Yeah, this yeah, is mostly good news. The longest week. list in our show notes that we've had to discuss in a very long time. That's true. That's true. There's a lot going on. I have to scroll to a second yeah, page. There's scrolling involved. This is an unusual. So last week we played our first listener contestant trivia game, and thank you to our mostly willing participants, Kira and Ganning, who played so well. We did make a, a small error, or I should say Uh I made a small error. What did you do? So it's not what I did, it's what I did in the future. So the question was, what ocean does the longest four-engine passenger flight fly over? And the answer as of tomorrow is the Indian Ocean. Because what I did is I looked at, I checked to see which of the longest four-engine flights are operating. I looked, I saw that Emirates had their Dubai Auckland flight operated by the A380, noted it down, and went on from there. What I failed to note was that it's not yet operated by the A380 because it starts operating on the 1st of December tomorrow. So a slight mistake there. It didn't affect the outcome of the game, so so that's good. But just wanted to put that out. So the correct answer to my futuristic self as of, well, as by the time this podcast comes out, the correct answer is the Indian Ocean. But the Arctic Ocean would be the correct answer up until Friday with Emirates' Dubai-Los Angeles flight. I'm sorry. You have been warned, Ian. That is your first and only warning. In not this week, we're not going to play. But we are going to play in future weeks. I'm organizing. We've had such a tremendous response that I'm organizing a way to get everyone together so that we can make the game flow a little bit more smoothly and make sure that as many people get to play as possible. What we'll probably end up doing is having some special shows or special segments where we just have the trivia game and people can listen to those either, you know, kind of as the back half of a normal episode or as special episodes of the podcast outside of us talking about what's happening in the commercial aviation industry and things of that nature. So that is the update on the Avtalk trivia game for the moment. Next week, Jason alluded to it. We will be in Stockholm if all goes well for Jason. And if things continue to go well for me, we will be from Stockholm episode. We'll talk with some folks in the office about some of the great things that we have coming up. There's some things that I'm really excited about. If you're a close follower of our Twitter account, you may have seen a few of those previewed. If you were looking closely and thought, hmm, that's interesting. But we'll talk more about that next week. So listen for that on next week's show. And now to this week's news. Which brings us to, I guess, in the end, good news that no one was seriously injured, which is very surprising given what happened. No one directly injured, though. I wonder, and I guess we'll get to this, but wonder if the resulting power outage ended up with any injuries. I I don't know. But no one on the aircraft or on the ground was injured. But Ian, what happened? 
So a Mooney M20J was on its way from White Plains down down to Gaithersburg. And as it approached Gaithersburg, there are high tension wires, or I'm not sure what you could call them otherwise, but power lines that are on those really, really tall towers, not the ones that go from house to house. High voltage transmission lines. There you go. High voltage transmission lines. And the aircraft was lower than it should have been on approach and hit the wires, not clipped them, not struck them and the aircraft continued on. No, full on aircraft carrier into the wires stopped midair being held up by these transmission lines. Just absolutely. Again, it was one of those defining Twitter things where it's just information just kept trickling out really quickly. But like there's just this this Mooney tangling from high voltage power lines. Ironically, power was actually on in the immediate area of the incident because those lines carry high voltage power to other places. But it was just surreal to see this aircraft dangling and getting reports that the pilot and the passenger were fine. Yeah. They suffered non-serious injuries. They were in the aircraft after it struck the, the lines and became entangled in the lines for quite some time because they had to get the power company out there with special equipment because these lines are very high up in the air. They had to to ground the aircraft and then they had to secure the aircraft so that it, when they opened the door to get people out, they wouldn't fall. Then they finally got them out and, and took them off to the hospital. But just kind of an incredible story about they weren't seriously injured. Thankfully, the actual structure of the tower, I guess, didn't... These things are more sturdy than you would think. There's one of these in my home neighborhood where the driver of a car drunk or lost control took out an entire leg of one of these towers and the thing barely budged. Car was not great, but the tower stood. And this one in particular, I think it, looking from the pictures, it had a steel pole up the middle of it because it also hosted some cell phone equipment. So it was lucky in that it was probably also structurally more sound than some others because it had other equipment on it. I do wonder if that helped keep the the tower upright and if this would be a, a very different conversation had it not been for, I don't know, Verizon antennas or T-Mobile antennas or whatever. I mean, again, I'm no structural engineer, but I'd be impressed either way, whatever happened. The interesting thing here, so the pilot has not said much, I think wisely on his part, but it's clear that the aircraft was flying too low on approach to the airport, which is like the funnel approach is not far, or the aircraft was not far from the end of the runway. These transmission lines are relatively close to the airport, but the pilot was obviously flying too low. The ADSB data that we have says they were flying at 1,100 feet. Now, we have to remember that 1,100 feet to ADSB data is not 1,100 feet above the ground. That's 1,100 feet above mean sea level at standard pressure. So to get to the above ground level altitude for the aircraft, you have to correct standard pressure into local pressure. Then you have to understand the elevation of the ground where the aircraft is flying, and then you have the altitude above the ground. So correcting for that from 1,100 feet, correcting for the standard pressure at the time and the elevation of the ground, it puts the aircraft at about 200 feet above ground level, which is about where the wires are. Yeah, not great. I wonder how much the NTSB investigation will 
echo what you've discovered there. And did I read that air traffic control actually reached out to the pilot several times saying, hey, you're too low? I didn't see that. I, thought I, I would not that. be surprised. I know there were questions about his intentions and, and what he was up to, but I would not be surprised if they did. Anyway, they were fine, I guess. They were treated for hypothermia since they were dangling in an unheated aircraft for the most of a day. Quite some time. Yeah. <laughs> While it was not all that warm out. But again, I can't substantiate this, but somebody on Twitter replied to me and said, this has actually happened there before. I don't know to what degree or if it was as severe as this, but huh, makes you think. I know there were concerns that these wires and approaching this particular airport, there had been issues before, but I don't think anyone's ever gotten tangled up in them. Yeah. No one's ever attempted an aircraft carrier style landing on them. Very, very Microsoft Flight Simulator-esque. Yes. Don't do that. In this event, no. Let's move on from this and talk about what's happening in Toulouse and Munich this week. So the second Airbus Summit is taking place. Last year, we attended the first Airbus Summit in last September, and we did kind of a behind-the-scenes tour of what Airbus was working on. This year, we weren't able to attend because schedules just didn't work out for a variety of reasons, unfortunately. But they are broadcasting the summit, and you can follow along by Friday, when the podcast comes out, you'll be able to go back and kind of look at everything that's happened in the week. But on the first day, a few interesting things came out. The progress of Airbus's hydrogen power solution or possible hydrogen power solution is kind of moving forward. We're getting a little bit more information about their hydrogen-powered fuel cell engine that's going to be mounted externally to the uh, A380 flight test aircraft, so MSN001, by 2026, will be flying with a hydrogen fuel cell engine attached to the, the rear fuselage. That's not new information, but Airbus has kind of detailed more of the information about what that's going to look like and the actual nature of this particular engine. So they're going to use uh, stacked hydrogen fuel cells and that will go on to, or inside the tank will go inside the A380, and then the engine will be mounted externally. So that'll be something to uh, to look out for. And I know people are going to get a look at that, I believe, later this week, kind of a, as a mock-up. Yeah, and these Airbus is still planning to flight test some of these new new hydrogen engines on Airbus MSN A380 MSN one, I think, in 2025. So a couple years from now. Very excited to see that, but a few of the highlights. The Zero E fuel cell engine, I just said, A380 MSN1 will flight test it in actually 2026 around there. Obviously, to support this, Airbus is building the first liquid hydrogen refueling center in Toulouse by 2025. There was also some other assorted, less interesting sustainable aviation fuel, as I put it on Twitter earlier today. Interesting that they're, they're still looking at fuel cell rather than very cold liquid hydrogen or, or is it is it liquid when it's very cold no right? it's liquid it's liquid liquid hydrogen but fuel cells is different right what's going to happen is the liquid fuel will go from the tank into the engine where it becomes gaseous mixes with oxygen and then that powers the fuel cells convert the hydrogen into electricity mm, okay so yes airbus has a a very nice video about this exact process basically and it's very interesting and you should watch it and ian will put a link to that in the show notes i'm sure 
I will absolutely do that. So yeah, like Jason said, the most interesting stuff so far has been in the hydrogen information. But the SAF stuff is, I guess, good because A, we're still talking about it and moving things forward because we're talking about you know producing more of it and moving the goalposts to more and more SAF produced. The key obviously, of course, is how is it going to be produced and how uh, or what are the feedstocks for that? Less information on that, but I'm sure that will become more apparent shortly. Yep. Interesting that Airbus spent the entire first day of the Airbus summit basically only focusing on next generation propulsion, be it hydrogen Electric was was mentioned, I believe, but Airbus is, is not so much in, in the electricity camp for propulsion and also sustainable aviation fuel. Kind of have to ding them a little bit if we're being fair that they operated the A350 eco demonstration flight from Toulouse to Munich to then demonstrate how eco-friendly it was. Would probably be more eco-friendly to not operate at all that flight. So I just thought that was kind of funny, but interested to see what day two has for Airbus. Yeah. So Airbus has day two of the summits in Munich. I'm not sure what huge benefit they got out of that. So I'm going to reserve judgment until tomorrow, whatever happens tomorrow. If whatever happens tomorrow isn't great, thir- being tomorrow being Thursday, um, then yes, I completely agree with you. If whatever they have cooked up for tomorrow is really great, well, then why didn't they just do the whole thing in Munich? I, you know, It's one of those things like I, I don't... They have a plan. I'm sure seems like a a good plan to them. So I will reserve judgment until then. But yes, I agree. It seems like it was a flight just to have a flight. Although we did get a decent look at the Airbus MPS on the A350, the new production standard with the slimmed sidewalls. I think John Ostrauer posted a photo of- And it is indeed a little slimmer. It is indeed a little slimmer. Who knew? Yeah. They also demonstrated, I believe, on that flight, their continuous descent approach into Munich. And they they claimed it saved 35% fuel, which is an astronomically high number. There are those in the industry that on that flight that claim that seemed a little bit high, but okay, 35% a lot. Now replicate it in reality on every flight. 35% compared to what, I guess? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll look into that one then. Yeah. That, yeah, that does seem like a high number. I hadn't seen that. That seems like a very high number. Okay. Time for not so great news. The engine that is slated to power the 777-9 is not attached to the aircraft any longer because something happened and they had to send it home. Boeing took the GE-9X engine that suffered as yet an unknown issue to us. They took it off the test aircraft. They took it off N779XW, which had been the only flying 777X test bed. There were four test aircraft built. 779XW had been the only one flying. After a flight on October 6th, they discovered something wrong with the engine. They sent it back to GE's facility in Ohio. Tim Clark, the president of Emirates, has, which is a 777 Nine's launch customer has said that we'll know something on December 6th. He didn't say how he knew that, but we assume that, that he's getting that information directly from GE and, uh, and Boeing. The question at this point is, is it something that's design related? And if so, that's really, really bad. Or is it something that was production related? And that's just bad. Yeah. And I'm quoting here from the AV... Yeah, regular bad. But I'm quoting here from the Aviation Week article, which is quoting... Tim Clark, end quote, engines are being stripped down because they blew up. That is a direct quote 
allegedly from Tim Clark, which is not good. Again, uh, we have not seen the engine. I don't think anyone's posted any images of it, so it didn't actually like explode or anything because we almost certainly would have seen that. But something very not good happened with this aircraft, which is good that it happened in flight testing. This extremely long in duration flight test program for the triple seven X aircraft. But whatever happened here, Boeing did not need this right now. Yeah, GE says that the issue was a temperature alert was observed and the operator shut the engine down normally. Engineering investigation of this engine continues. So I think Tim Clark is using blue up liberally there. We'll see exactly what the issue is. But if the problem is design-related, the GE9X has already had some design-related delays. And if the problem is again design-related, that pushes things beyond the 2025 window that Emirates is targeting now. And at some point, if I'm Emirates, I have to say, okay, when you get the plane, maybe I'll think about ordering more. But we've been waiting around for years already. It seems like we're heading into the territory where the the first 787s and first A380s, when they were delivered, they were so behind schedule that when they were finally delivered and accepted by airlines, the interiors were already like a generation behind because they had already come off the factory line. They had already been specced out. The interiors installed and they sat for years and years and years. And so you ended up with like United 787s coming off the line with several generation old entertainment systems that they like already had to rip and replace. They didn't do it immediately, but like really seems like the 777X is, is heading down that line. I mean, just look at Lufthansa. They introduced their new or they introduced the concept of their new business class seat for the 777X seeming like a decade ago. And it's not coming anytime soon. No. So hopefully it was a production issue or something that is easily resolvable and they can put the engines back on the aircraft and continue flight testing. Let's stick with Boeing. And this is good news if it goes through for Boeing. The triple, uh, triple seven, seven, three, seven, dash seven and dash 10 max are not yet certified. And as we've talked about a bunch of times in the past, if they're not certified, basically by the end of 2022, they need to be equipped with crew alerting systems, which is not going to happen. Which they're not going to be certified by then, so so that's certainly not going to happen. Senator Maria Cantwell this week is circulating draft legislative language as part of the defense authorization bill that would remove that requirement from the 737-7 and 737-10 that would allow Boeing to certify them as they currently are working towards. This is something that, that we thought was going to happen. There was Previously, Senator Wicker introduced an amendment that is still alive, but doesn't seem like it's being considered much anymore. Cantwell's amendment is interesting because it includes additional provisions. It removes the timeline from the MAX 7, MAX 10 certification, but it then says that you have to include Boeing has to retrofit every MAX 8 and MAX 9 with the technology developed for the MAX 10, which is the third angle of attack sensor, which is a software sensor that basically compares the values between the two physical sensors and says, well, if one of them disagrees, then that's not, we're going to exclude the the erroneous data and go with the more logical data. And then there's also the ability to silence the stick shaker if it activates erroneously. Those two things would need to be retrofitted onto all Max 8 and Max 9 
aircraft. That would bring, if this is included and passed, that would bring the US into into line with EASA, so the European Union's requirements, as well as Transport Canada's requirements for retrofitting all of the MAX aircraft with those two pieces of technology. Yeah, I like this. I have no notes. This is good. I hope this, go- <laughs> I hope this goes through. It's clearly evident that Boeing has no appetite or intent to add the ECAS system to the 7 and 10. That's just not a reality that's going to happen. It's also not a reality where they're just not going to produce and sell these aircraft. So to me, this seems like the right balance of legislative workarounds and getting done what needs to get done. And remember, this is going back to, I think, 2020, a Trump era mandate that aircraft need to have, or was it 2018? 2018? So this was passed in 2020. This was the the law that was passed in response to the MAX crashes and criticism of the FAA's oversight of Boeing's certification of the MAX. So it was a 2020 Trump error decision, which I think was the right decision. It was a good call to do that. I don't like that we're weaseling our way around it, but who ever would have thought that we'd be in this position where the 7 and 10 are still not certified? I don't think anyone saw that coming. Well, yeah. I mean, COVID certainly didn't help. I don't think you can blame this one on COVID, at least not much of it. Part of it stems from being you know, unable to operate a lot of the flights that Boeing wanted to operate Some to of get the it, aircraft yes. certified. But there's a lot of other things that go into that too. I will quote this from Dominic Gates's great article in the Seattle Times, which we put in the show notes. Cantwell said her amendment tells airlines, you have to make these retrofits and Boeing has to pay for them. So there you go. So it kind of makes the the airlines happy as well. Moving on. So this is, I think, great news for Singapore Airlines, but good news, I think, for everybody, hopefully. So the plan now is for Air India and Vistara to merge. The Tata Group controls both Air India as of recently, which we talked about in a few episodes ago, and then Vistara, which is their joint venture airline between Tata and Singapore Airlines. So Singapore Airlines owns 49% of Vistara at the moment. Singapore Airlines will invest $250 million in the merged company and receive a quarter, 25.1% to be specific, interest in the merged Air India Vistara. Tata will control the other 74.9%. This sets up what I'm not sure, they haven't really said whether or not they'll keep the two airlines separate as far as airline naming and things like that go. But the idea is to set up Air India as a much stronger competitor domestically to Indigo, which is just has over 50% market share in the domestic market, and then allow a kind of revitalized long-haul airline outside of Air India's core flights to grow as well. And we've talked about it a couple times in the past recently about a rumored very large order coming from Air India up to 300 and I think 75 aircraft is what they're targeting split between narrow body and wide body jet. So that could be coming soon as well, but no one really knows if and when that's going to happen and how it's going to go exactly. Sorry, I'm a little distracted trying to book a flight suddenly now that availability popped up very, very us <laughs> right now. 
Very on brand. Yeah, very on brand. But I, I would be disappointed to see Vistara go. I think we discussed this before, so I won't harp on it. But they were looked at in the last few years since their startup as the premium option in India if you didn't want to deal with Air India. But really, the issue with Air India wasn't really the domestic operation. It was the, the travesty of the long haul operation. And hopefully with new management, new blood there, new money, they can undo the, the very stained last couple decades of history at Air India and turn it around to be the airline it really should be because it, it should be a world-class airline, especially in a country with that population and that much potential. They can do better and hopefully they do. So this is good news on top of terrible news, but Eurocontrol has set up a voluntary fund for states that have lost revenue due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we talked about this kind of extensively as we were talking about airspace bans and things like that back in late February, early March. But what we're seeing now is you know, that revenue hit coming after eight, nine months to air navigation service providers that would normally be charging extensive fees to aircraft flying over their airspace no longer seeing those aircraft fly over their airspace. And so Eurocontrol is setting up a fund to kind of distribute funds to air navigation service providers to kind of make up for that shortfall, as well as loans to certain ANSPs so that they can continue operating and make their budgets because they, they still have to operate. They still you know have you know flights and they still have to maintain safety regulations and things like that. But the revenue coming from overflights is, is just down dramatically because all of the other airlines are, are you know, flying around their airspace to make sure that they can avoid Russia or aircraft that would normally be flying over from Russia are no longer allowed in their airspace. So they don't, you know, they're not providing revenue anyway. Yeah. I had not heard this before. I read it in our show notes. And this is this is a really good thing that they're doing. I wonder where they got maybe not got the idea, but who started this idea? Where, where did this come from? Because yeah, this is overflight revenue for some countries is a huge source of revenue. There are some countries that probably a non-negligible amount of revenue coming into the federal government is from overflight permits. But this is really interesting. I would love to dig into the numbers of what country took the biggest hit, what country is going to get the most revenue from this fund. It's a really interesting idea because like you said, Ian, countries that may not be getting the large overflight revenue that they would have in the past, they still need air traffic control for other flights and flights within their country. And Euro control can't have an operator in a country just suddenly say, we're bankrupt, we're out of money. So this is a, this is a good idea. Not too often do you get an idea that just you say, that's a good idea and they should do it. So it won't surprise you to learn that Ukraine is the I am not surprised <laughs> the the biggest loser of funding for for overflights. Moldova is is a close second. They're getting I, I call it a grant, I guess, of nearly fifty million euros. And then Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland will take a loan from your control member states of they're both 46 million euros so both almost 50 million euros and that is being used to cover quote staff and training costs as well as any other costs needed to ensure operational readiness and continuity when air traffic recovers so good on them 
Now we've got a bunch of basically flight following stuff to talk about to round out this show. Some interesting orders, some interesting deliveries, and some fun news I think that Jason's really excited to share. But we'll start with Korean Air taking delivery of its first A321neo, which is not hugely notable other than the fact that the inside of the plane- It's not blue. Is not, not blue. I guess that's the biggest news there. It, Wait, it what has, were you going to go with? I was just going to say it has the new revamped interior. No, I don't care about that. Layout. Yes, I, I literally did write the article about this, about their new interior, and that it is vastly better than our bodies that I guess it's replacing or adding to. It has proper lay flat seats and seatback screens and, and the works, but it's not blue. It looks like any other airline. And I'm, I'm on the fence, and I don't know about you, but when I see that blue on an inside of a Korean aircraft, I know it's Korean. There's no doubt that you're flying Korean. I don't always like it because I think the blue, the light blue kind of looks cheap on some of their products, but they took the soul out of the blue interior. This is a very interesting argument because your your own I'm argument arguing against myself. I know, I know. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> and you didn't even catch my pun. I'm so disappointed. Oh, I missed it. They took the soul sorry. out of the interior oh, of the aircraft. Boo. I had to repeat it because you didn't boo. hear it. No, but no, no. I, I don't like it. It works on some of their aircraft, but on some of them, the light blue looks cheap. When they, some of their products are not world class. They're not the greatest. But this is, and our friend John Walton wrote a, a very long article about this. But it's an odd shift, seemingly out of nowhere, that they did this. But I guess it's probably the first interior for the possibly combined Asiana Korean Air. So it's probably the first shot at a unified interior in the future. The blue, maybe they don't continue with the blue. I don't know. But yeah, as you can see, I'm clearly conflicted about this. Well, while Jason kind of works through his feelings, let's talk about something that I have strong feelings about. And that's the penultimate Boeing 747 has been delivered to Atlas Air. But so, not in Atlas Air livery, right? Atlas-ish air livery. Yeah. This particular aircraft, N862GT, is the first of two aircraft that are operated by Atlas Air, and the capacity is wholly leased to, to Kuhn and Nagel, and they get their name on the side of the plane, at least on this first of two. The second of two is going to be the last 747 ever produced. So I really hope that they at least have some sort of special livery acknowledging the fact that it's the last one ever. I and hope. if they don't, I'm going to be very angry. What, what do you put on that aircraft? I don't know. What could you possibly grace the final ever, ever, ever in history 747 with to really – to really bring it home. That, that's a lot of, lot of, I don't know, nostalgia, a lot of history to be painted on that last aircraft, but I, I've got a bad feeling about it. Yeah, it'll probably end up looking like any old other. If nothing has but, leaked by now, it's probably because there's nothing to leak. Well, they, I mean, they haven't painted it yet as far as I'm aware. So it, the last one has not yet flown. So it, it's still in production. So as of right now, the 747 is still in production. But in the coming weeks, that will stop. Atlas Air also took the first 
777 that it's operating for MSC Mediterranean. So that's also in an Atlas Air adjacent livery. So I guess be on the lookout for that one. Let's see what else. Oh, Comac has now in its hands the C919 production certificate. So they can make planes. That's they're, good. They're they, no they longer, want to they make are planes. no longer not allowed to produce the planes. They have that certificate and they, they can get going. The first one is now in China, China Eastern livery, and that is supposed to be delivered well, by the time the podcast comes out this month, it'll be delivered in December at some point. And then we'd go to New York because Jason, it turns out every airline that doesn't already fly between New York and Paris is starting New York and Paris flights next year. That's true. Maybe Norwegian will give it a shot again. But already we have JetBlue had already announced they're going to fly. That will be their next European destination, JFK to CDG, I believe. And now Norse Atlantic will fly JFK to CDG. So we're getting the good airports here. We're not even getting the other airport. Fares have absolutely bottomed out. So I don't know, I could go to Paris for cheaper than I can go to like Boston on Amtrak these days, at least off season. But it is another one of those routes. That's just a bottomless pit of demand. You could put however many flights on it a day you want, and there will be people who want to book it. But at some point, the flights are going to be not quite profitable. They'll still be filling them, but they're not going to be profitable. But I guess we'll see what Norse has to say about this. They're looking a little more like Norwegian every time they announce one of these routes. And I don't actually know anyone that's flown Norse personally. I know people who flew Norwegian, but I don't know how popular they are. I think Ethan Clapper's flown Norse. Yeah, he flew so, like the maiden flight yeah, yeah. to JFK. That doesn't count. Okay, fine. Let's stick with JFK because SAS is going to fly the A321LR from JFK beginning in January. Okay. And I'm not sure why. Well, yeah, it's a head scratcher. It had me scratching my head for a while there. SAS you figured it out. Yeah, well, no, but SAS is one of those Newark airlines and well, I should be flying them in a couple of days. I have to go all the way to Newark. I don't like going all the way to Newark. I'd rather go to JFK. But JFK is one of those slot-controlled airports, so you can't just pop into JFK and say, I'm here, give me a gate. So the, the flights are quite late. Like I think in the summer, they operate out of JFK almost at midnight. So they're not exactly well-timed. It's on a narrow body, which is fine on the shorter transatlantic flights to like Ireland and maybe the UK, but all the way to the SAS's hubs in the Nordic region. That's quite far for 321, but I guess they did it back in the day with like 737s out of Boston. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But wasn't that the all business class configuration? It was mostly business. There was some economy on it. Oh, right. Some of the time. Some of the time. It wasn't always like that. But yeah, so there is precedent for this. But for JFK, I guess they want people from Long Island or the boroughs of Long Island. So I kind of get it. But for an airline that's like coming out of bankruptcy, can't seem to get airline pricing right, like they're always too damn cheap. This seems like an odd focus. I'd, I'd imagine that they could use that 321LR to do something like farther down into the sun destinations of Europe, but I guess that they think they can eke more profit at JFK. And if they want to give us more service, sure, I'll take it. All right. All right. But they're operating at a T7 and T7 doesn't have you know a long life left and we'll get to that in a minute, I guess. But, well, tell, uh, tell, let's, let's get right, to let's it Let's go now. right into well, that. Tell me, Actually, tell me more about T7. I, I added this at the last minute, but 
JFK T7 is, was British Airways' home for decades and decades. It was the British Airways terminal, their home away from home. Probably it was a historic terminal in the, in the regard that British Airways went through many phases of the modern aviation industry at that terminal. So they introduced the 747 there, the Concorde, the A318. It's all the birth of airline alliances. And now British Airways has by the time this podcast comes out, fully moved from T7 into T8, American's bustling one-world hub at JFK, along with Iberia will be moving over, JAL will move over next year. So that just all came out this week. But it's the end of a very long, very historic era for British Airways at JFK T7. And I'm happy to see them get a new home that isn't a terrible old terminal, but it makes room for others like SAS to come on in. Yeah. I will miss the nostalgia, but I'm not sure I'll miss T7. No. So by far the largest carrier there now is, I guess, Alaska Airlines, who doesn't have a very large presence there to begin with. So it's kind of like a zombie terminal, which T1 kind of also is or used to be, but T7 is now, now the zombie terminal, where if you don't have a home in another terminal, you just kind of end up there. It's going to be weird not having British Airways there. I don't know what they're going to do with their huge lounge space. Maybe I can rent part of it out for an apartment. I don't know. There you go. They're not doing anything else with it. (laughs) All right. Closing out, we've got an E195 E2 order, five firm orders. And I mention this only because the undisclosed customer is an airline with exciting new plans for future growth. Wow. Which... All right. Wow. Yeah. Not much to go on. I hate these press releases where they don't tell you who the airline is. They don't even tell you the region that this airline is based in. But all we know is some airline with exciting new plans for future growth wants five E195s. Is going to buy airplanes. That's great for them. And then the last bit of news is I think Jason's favorite. He's been bugging me for months. Like, when is this going to happen? I I didn't forget about it for nine months or anything. Nope. Yeah, no. So, so what is going on with this particular plane, Jason? T-Fish, or more precisely, T-F-I-S-H, which spells out T-Fish, which is funny for a moment. We'll get into that in a moment. But Iceland Air Cargo's first 767 converted freighter I believe. We knew it was coming for months now. We saw it go into the shop. Now we see it come out of the shop in full new Icelandair livery. This one in flaming hot pink livery, I guess you would call it. I don't know. They, they moved to this new livery where they have a bunch of different colors. And this one, Icelandair is an Icelandair blue and cargo and the, I don't know, racing stripe whatever on the tail is like hot pink. So it's like what they did is they took the four pack of highlighters that you can get like on the school supply list. That's it. And they just went, okay, we'll let paint that color on the tail and it'll be fine. Yeah. And I just noticed a little rainbow coming out of the aircraft on this first picture we're getting. But yeah, interesting. T-F-I-S-H, T-Fish. And if you're not getting the joke, it's because Iceland Air Cargo probably mostly just moves fish around from place to place. I assume fish and, and sweaters. Fish and sweaters, the primary exports of Iceland, but good on them for having some humor on the uh, registration. It's <laughs> not quite as humorous as the old Wowware ones were. Do you remember that? Those were good. Those, Those were, were good. good. Those are gone. But T-Fish, out delivering fish to us to an airport near you soon. 
There you go. Before we go, if you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, you may or may not know that we also have a corresponding YouTube channel where there's some great stuff. And this week's video that just came out that our colleague Gabriel Lee was fortunate enough to put together is the North Pole route that Finnair has been flying from Tokyo to Helsinki over the North Pole. And he was granted access to the flight deck to film that particular flight. And the video that he has produced is just really, really great. So if you have a chance, head over to our YouTube channel, click the link in the show notes and watch that particular video, especially because I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm not jealous at all that he got to do that. No, No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. It's not coming through at all. (laughs) But it is a really great video and, and you should check it out. So until next week, when hopefully both Jason and I are in Stockholm together, this has been episode 192 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.